Well, happy anniversary. It works out lovely that, I don't know, it was months ago that Beth, I asked Beth to take Mark and break it up into enough weeks to cover ordinary time, and it just so happens we end up with a lovely passage uh, for us to talk about on, on this, our ninth anniversary. Uh, this is so, at least in my own mind, because the notion of servant is core to following Jesus, and this is what we're getting at uh, during ordinary time this year in our readings in Mark, and thus I think it gets right to the heart of the vision of Holy Trinity Church. And that is for nine years we've been saying and trying to live into this journey inward into the transformation of our own souls and this journey outward that whatever piety we might develop in us would be experienced by others as for their good. So if you look at your passage, there's some key words here. First, you see suffering all the way to the point of being killed. You see this phrase, last of all. You see the phrase, servant of all. And you see this lovely moment of caring for a marginalized child. But the disciples hear this and they see it, but the text says they don't understand. And I just gotta be honest and say, I empathize with them. I mean, I, I get that they didn't understand it. And we've talked enough in this series about you know, the more political religious hopes that they would have had for the Messiah, but not on that level. I empathize this morning with this. Why would anyone seek these things? I mean, come on, who do we really know who's seeking to be last of all? Right? I mean, this is just one of those texts where we just have to be honest and say, so much of the time this just resides on the level of religious rhetoric or the kind of sweet sayings you might put on a, you know, a plaque on your kitchen wall or something. Maybe a bunch of lilies. I'm seeking to be last of all, or something like that, right? I mean, I don't even think that phrase has ever made it to a bumper sticker or to a wall hanging even. I mean, that's just like even too ridiculous for a religious wall hanging, right? Like, I mean, come on, who would really do this? Wouldn't most normal people automatically wonder who was first? Wouldn't most normal people wonder who was the opposite, the greatest, and the most worthy of being served? Don't we really wonder who's the person most worthy of receiving adulation? I mean, aren't most people today obsessed with gaining self-worth? Obsessed with making sure others recognize their value and protecting that image? Don't most of us really worry about status relative to others? And that's what's happening in this passage. And what was happening with the disciples is Jesus walked in front of them and they walked in a line behind and they were bickering with each other about who is the greatest and it kind of gets up to Jesus's ears. That's what was happening with them. They were wondering about their relative status one to the other. And now we've got this amazingly powerful social media tours, uh, tools that assist us in creating and enforcing a status, right? I mean, they weren't back there tweeting out actually, I'm the greatest. <laughs> or I think Jesus likes me best. You know, they weren't able to put that on Insta with a little picture of them walking with Jesus. But now we have these amazingly powerful tools that help us create a self, posture, position, insist on people understanding that we're eating all the right stuff and going to all the right places and having all the right experiences and so we're able to enforce, in a sense, a status. 
Or looking at it differently, looking at it from a more psychological point of view. I'm not a psychologist, but I have lots of friends who are. And I pretty regularly hear from my friends who work in that, that trade, that profession, that there is like an unspeakably, like you can hardly even measure the growth of, of narcissism and the diagnosis of narcissism in our culture. It's rapidly expanding. And I just wonder, I mean, there's lots of, lots of concerns any of us might have on any given social justice issue. But I wonder about the kind of the social justice issue of the amount of harm that's being done to humans under the burden to have to create a self. And not only the harm we do to ourselves in trying to create a self, rather than trying to discover the createdness in us, and I think you can hear that those are very different things, but this pressure we all have, again, that I don't think this is the problem with social media. You should never hear me bashing social media. I'm not. I'm too much of a Jesus freak because I know that it's out of the abundance of the heart that one does post on Insta. It's not Insta's fault. And it's out of the abundance of the heart that one does tweet. It's not Twitter's fault. It's not Apple's fault. It's not the software geniuses who enable all this. It's not their fault. It's just that it's given us this powerful tool to create a self versus peacefully and compellingly finding a self in these teachings of Jesus. Like, like, come on, what if this is real? What if the way to human flourishing, what if the best way to being human as God intended is actually a path of the journey inward that it would be necessary to take to even be willing to be the last of all? Can I have exquisite tension just for a moment? Like, what if this is a word from another reality? What if this is knowledge and not religious mumbo jumbo? What if it's something like this? I just got back from Portland last night. And can I tell you, the skies are bluer. Amazing. The air is fresher. The trees are greener. The clouds are whiter. Look at me. I was just there. It's real, it's true. I know you don't experience it, you experience smog. I know you experience a lot of dead things and drought. But can I tell you, I've been there. It's amazing, it's stunning and it's beauty. Now you think of Jesus as the second person of the Holy Trinity. That's a whole lot more profound than being in Portland. And he comes to earth saying, this is what's real. That the greatest, the ones most aligned to the will of God for creating humans in the first place are those who are willing to be servant of all. Right? Just think of the simple logic here. Think of that passage in Hebrews that says, Jesus is the expressed image of God. He is the representation of God. And so from that passage and others, theologians have rightly said, in my view, that kind of everything we know about God, we know through the life of Jesus, who said, we'll read in the next chapter, he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Like, that's real. And so we're, what we're being invited into here is a reality of which the personas that we create on social media 
our tiny little hopeful trying to get at something that will just leave us thirsting for more. So we'll only actually find this worldview of Jesus compelling enough to cultivate a, a, like a servant's heart and cultivate the desire to be in the place of serving others, of choosing the lowest place and the most humble way of being. I just wanna say, I think we'll only do that if we think Jesus is great. And if we think he knew what he was talking about and he knew what he was doing and that he was competent and smart. See, it is one thing for someone to sit here this morning and say, I trust the shed blood of Jesus to forgive my sins and because of that, I get to go to heaven when I die, which is all good and, good and fine. But it's one thing to say that, to have come to that sort of Christian belief. It's another thing to say, I trust Jesus. I don't just trust in something he did. I trust him. I trust him as a person. I trust the things he taught. I trust the way he, he comported himself in the world. I think he's amazing, stunningly brilliant. And therefore, I've apprenticed myself to him. Can you see how those are very different things? And we won't actually try to live into this, this lastness, this servant-heartedness. We won't really apprentice ourselves to him and into that reality unless we see that, yeah, really the interpretive key for Jesus's life is he came not to serve, sorry, not to be served, but to serve. And so this then is what leads us as followers of Jesus to try to cultivate a servant-hearted way of being in the world, a world that reflects these two key realities, these two, I would say, twin geniuses of Jesus. As you go through life, don't do anything to anybody that you'd want done to you. And never fail to do to somebody what you'd want done for you. Now, how can you do that? without a servant heart. Like if our whole sense of ourselves is ourself and our own needs and the self we're trying to create and the things we don't have in this life, well, then that creates all the people of an events of our lives as sources to be used. And it creates the giant sucking sound we hear in humanity of everybody trying to suck something from everybody else. But when we can stand in life thinking that Jesus is a genius, and that his words correspond to realities that are unseen to us, like the Portland air right now is unseen to us. The fact that it's unseen doesn't mean it's not real, but these things actually do cohere to something really real or the great commandment. It's Jesus who said, you know what? There's a lot of hard stuff in Leviticus. And like, who can really know about the first couple chapters of Genesis? And man, there is a long line of patriarchs and prophets and kings and doing dopey stuff. But you know what? When it all boils down to it, just love the Lord your God. All your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And love your neighbors yourself. And oh yeah, by the way, sometimes your neighbor's gonna include your enemy. But it's okay, do good to those who persecute you. Love your enemies. So like, what is that? That's either, that's either religious rhetoric or it's true. It's like stunningly true. And therefore we say, hmm, all of my heart, soul, mind, body, will, the structure of my current structure of my desires, they aren't aligned to loving God. And they aren't precisely aligned to loving my neighbor as myself, including my enemy. And thus, 
I have a really hard time living into this Jesus movement of being a servant. And this is why nine years ago, when we launched this church, we said, hey, let's go on this twin journey. Let's see if we can go on this journey of inward transformation into Christ-likeness. And let's do it not just for the sake of that, but let's do it for the sake of this journey outward so that we could precisely serve others in the everyday rhythms of our life. But I know what happens when you talk like this. Again, it, it, it can sound just so much like religious rhetoric and you know, practical people wonder, well, come on, isn't kindness and caring, isn't that sort of behavior, doesn't that really create soft people? You know, like soft in the sense of being, being unable to do the right thing or make hard decisions. And I wanna say this, and I would die on this hill, that every act of human life that can be done through anger, bullying, threatening, or misleading can be done better in servant-hearted ways. I would die on that hill. So then that raises this crucial action point. Becoming a servant-hearted follower of Jesus requires going on this journey inward to becoming the kind of person, that's such an important phrase, becoming the kind of person who would want to live into this passage. I mean, that's the first thing. Would we even want to? And then if we wanted to, could get to the place where we could serve others and then go on this journey outward of of beginning to notice others, to notice the people and events of our lives, to be alert to situations in which we can serve for the good of others. So I'll speak for myself, but it's likely I speak for some of you too, that here's the bottom line though of our followership. My heart, probably our hearts, are a mix of good and bad. They're a mix of potential and helpless weakness. And our inner persons feel like these hard drives of memories and motivations that are married to hopes and dreams, mixed up with doubts and fears. And what I've discovered is that I can't be a servant leader without taking a deep look at and healing my own heart because Jesus is such a genius. Hey, Todd, you lead out of the abundance of your heart. So that I say it all the time, and I mean it. I never once have woke up in the morning thinking, hey, I'm a bishop. Or, hey, I'm the pastor of a church. Or, hey, I'm a professor. Or, hey, I'm an author. I've never once woke up and thought that. I wake up in the morning, hand over my heart, saying, I'm an apprentice of Jesus. And now, Lord, I'm gonna live this day and I live, I live a very varied life. And so I have a lot of varied activities in my life. And so now, Lord, whatever the activities are today, let's just do them. So I don't remember, I, I have like nine things to do in Portland and three talks. And so I don't, but at one point I'm getting out of the car and I, I don't know, I was going to do one of those things. And I just said, okay, Jesus, me and you, let's go do this work together. That's the way I live my life. Just trying to be present to what's real trying to do my best in gentle little ways to live into this, to not beat myself up when I don't live into it, but to just be a child before God, just wanting to live into the reality that I think Jesus is painting for us here. Again, it's his genius where he says, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. Now in those words stored up in him, you could just say something like the journey inward or something like, spiritual disciplines or whatever, right? We're storing up in us good things, but the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. 
So Jesus's basic idea, especially when he was talking to the 12, knowing that they were gonna be leaders of the church, he says to them, Luke 22, kings like to throw their weight around and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. But he says, it's not gonna be that way with you. With you, let it be like this. Let the senior among you be like the junior and let the leader act the part of the servant. And so what Jesus is doing here in terms of the inner journey of the 12 is that he's training these first followers in this core values that was meant to shape their work, humble servant leadership, no matter what title they may hold. And again, to be fair here, I think we have to stop and ask, isn't it possible that Jesus is just naive? That human life just doesn't work that way. I mean, doesn't he know that the only way to get things done in the real world is to precisely throw your weight around? Doesn't he know that servants get bullied while others get rewarded? Picture Jesus in a lecture hall at Wharton or at Stanford or MIT with a room full of freshly minted PhDs in leadership. Do you think he would wilt? Like, oh, sorry, you know, I haven't read what you read. Like, okay, like maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe human life really is all about power and amassing power and guarding it and using it for your ends. Okay, I give up. Or do you think he could explain himself and say, no, this is how life actually is. So then we've been on this journey for nine years trying to be a good tree that bears good fruit, trying to live into the teachings of Jesus to clean the inside of the cup and dish with the hope that the outsides of us would be clean and good for others. We've been trying to not just whitewash these external tombs of ours, but to create life inside, trying to work on lots of little little bits of indifference. I mean, I still remember the day eight or nine years ago when Beth and Todd Pickett and I sat at her house for a day And we wrote those little marginal notes that have been in your bulletin for nine years. Those little invitations for how to experience our worship together. Well, why'd we do that? Because we thought, well, these could just be gentle little bits of indirect effort that might retrain our hearts and souls so that we weren't left just trying harder to be a servant, trying to control a broken interior life. But we hoped that these little invitations would fix our wanters that they would help realign the interior source of our desires, that they would be little Sunday after Sunday ways of being trained off the spot so that we would then be able to do the right thing on the spot. So what do you suppose is pondered in the heart of a follower of Jesus who cannot live into this sort of servanthood? I think in my experience, it's things like this. I can't really act like a servant here because I might get hurt. It's really important that I control this meeting It's really important that I control this conversation because I might get hurt here. Or I have to secure myself by controlling the environment and therefore using my power to govern the responses of others. Because if after all, if I don't protect myself, no one will. Stuff like that. That's what's common. But what about the interior life of the servant pursuing spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness? And while, of course, no one is perfect about this, what I see in the people who are making progress in this sort of life, I think they have a thought life that goes something like this. I am always safe in the kingdom of God. The Lord is my shepherd. 
Therefore, I never have to hurt another to get what I want or to make myself safe. That frees me to be a servant. That frees me to be kind. It frees me to be generous. It frees me to be gracious. And it frees me to be generative. It frees me to be a life-giving presence in the human pain that all of us experience. Servants, I think, the best ones that I've known get to the place where they know, not just in sort of like a cognitive ascent, but they know somewhere deep in their inner being that I can be still and know that God is Lord of this situation. You see, if you come from the councils of the Holy Trinity, way better than blue air and green trees, like if he came into the earth knowing that, Of course, this is what he then lives into. And the wisdom of the Proverbs tells us that we grow into this. And this has been, again, so so core to our nine years. God knows how many times I've quoted this in nine years. My translation of Proverbs 4.23. Put everything you have into the care of your heart, the hidden, causative, motivational you. For everything you do flows from it. It is the real source of your outward life. And it determines what your life amounts to. So I just want to leave you with this vision this morning, then, having heard all this. And the vision I want you to take with you this week is this, that there is a divine life available to you. And it is the true home of the human soul. And that we enter this realm, we enter the heart of God by simply placing our confidence in him, becoming his friend, and following him. And then this, the intersection of this divine life with our life is meant to shape our inner life, our heart, soul, will, and mind, such that then the overflow of our heart, when it's on display, it will be seen as something that is nourished by goodness and strength and therefore can be a generative presence of goodness and strength. So breaking out Todd the Evangelist. Will you do it? Will you place your trust in Jesus Will you rely on him and follow him? Will you bet your life on God's kingdom? Will you become his apprentice in kingdom living and in servant-hearted followership?